But with that, let's pray and get into our text for today. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for laughter. We thank you for uh, the opportunity to gather, to worship you, to fellowship with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to um, just to worship you through music, uh, to seek you through your, your revealed word. Lord, I do thank you for the gospel of Mark. I thank you um, for the story that is before us today. Uh, today's story is a painful story. And Lord, I ask that you would help us t- to really be able to place ourselves in the story, that we would feel the, the pain, the sorrow, the desperation, um, and your deliverance that uh, comes through these two stories that are sort of sandwiched together. Uh, we ask that you would be glorified. We ask that you would help us uh, to reach the place where we are uh, desperate for you and that we would call out to you. Lord, we thank you that you love us, um, that you're merciful to us, that you pursue us. And so, Father, we, uh, we give this time to you. We ask that your spirit would lead us, Lord, uh, into your word. Uh, may he um, help us to understand the revelation that you have given to us in this, this portion of Scripture. And we pray this for Christ's namesake. Amen. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her, so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for twelve years and had endured much at the hand of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was speaking, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. 
and he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brothers of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl. I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we ask that you would guide us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so the, the parallel accounts um, can be found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, and Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Um, I forgot to put that up there, but uh, sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> so verse 21, we begin. When Jesus had crossed over again, in the boat to the other side. I know I've got you guys all trained to hear, like it's the danger side. I realize there's an ex this is an exception because we're on the bad side already. The story, we're in Kersey, the, the, the eastern side of the, it's a Decapolis. They, they, we're picking up the story um, back in uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 and 36, there's huge crowds, and he said, hey, we're going to go over to the other side. Da -da -da -da. They all get scared. They get in the boat. They cross the boat. The big storm kicks up. They're all terrified about the big storm. They land probably in the morning, and they're met by this demon-possessed guy that, is, that has been a problem for, for a long time. He's, he's there cutting himself. The people are terrified. He's got super strength. Jesus uh, casts out the demons, the guy's restored in his right mind, and all of the local people basically are furious with Jesus, and they say, get out of here. Oh, yeah, there's all the pigs that went off the cliff. And, and so their economy was affected. And the, the man is pleading with Jesus to go with them to follow him. And he says, no, you need to stay here and tell all the people about what um, God has done for you and what great mercy he has exercised upon you. And so he does that. And so they leave that scene, and they cross back to the good side, um, and a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. If we want to go back to chapter 4, verses 35 through 36, I alluded to this. Um, in verse 35 of chapter 4, it says, on that day when evening came, he said, let's, uh, he said, let's go over to the other side, the, da -da -da -da, the bad one. Leaving the crowd, they took along with them, along with him in the boat, just as he was. And so the picture is, is there's huge crowds up in Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters, that the, 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 the scene had been so intense. As we've been going through Mark twice, I think, already, we've seen that the crowds were so pressing upon him, were, were so uh, forcing, like not forcing, but just demanding so much from him that he, he and the disciples didn't even have time to, to eat a meal and and it almost makes me wonder, like, did they go to the other side because they, the crowds wouldn't follow over there because that's a Decapolis. Nobody would go over to that side. And, 
and they do what they need to do over a few days, and as they return back to Capernaum, the crowds are still there waiting. And it's, it's, it's like this scene, as they land on the, the land, as they land on the land, it's so condensed with people that he can't get up into the, to the, where the, the town is, where the houses are, where Peter's, mother, where Peter's uh, mother-in-law lived, the home there, where the synagogue was. And so we're told that he just stayed by the seashore. Like he, he reached the wall of people and he stuck there. And so all the while, over the course of the last few days, while Jesus is dealing with this, this demon-possessed man, there's another situation happening back in Capernaum. A, a, a truly desperate situation. A, a mother and father are watching their young daughter die. And they don't know what's going on. They've tr- certainly, they've tried everything that they can do. But, but they, they're at the end of the rope and the daughter's dying. I mean, this is... This is this is a scene where she's in her last moments of life. It's not like she's sick and they have days. This, this is like a 911 type call. Um, and so in verse 22, we're, we meet this, this father. And in today's story, in my prayer, I mentioned sort of Mark is known for, he has um, Mark's sandwiches, where he'll often tell two stories and intertwine them. So there's like the bread, the meat, and the bread. We saw this before. When the family came to Jesus, you had the impardonable sin. Then we go back to the family saying he needs to come home. And he's like, I have no family. Like my family are my brothers and sisters. So these two stories are woven together. And on one end of the story, we have a, a synagogue official named Jairus. So we... Uh, we have a man with extreme status. We, we have a man that's identified by name. C- clearly, uh, this was an important person. This, this, is a, this is a man who could have had and achieved whatever he needed amongst the people, and nothing worked. At the end of the day, he has his 12-year-old daughter who's on the verge of death, and he, he's helpless. He's totally, completely desperate. His only option is Jesus. And in this story, it's important to point out because the Pharisees have such bad reputation amongst Christians, not all of them were bad. There, there were many Pharisees and many of the religious leaders who came to faith in Christ. And here we see this religious leader who goes to Jesus, who we see in his posture that he's doing everything correctly. Um, and we're going to get to the woman. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, the story includes this woman. We, she has no name. We know nothing about her other than she's been hemorrhaging for, for 12 years. Um, she, she would have been, by all uh, practical purposes, she, w- she would be categorized with lepers on the edge of town, not allowed to, to participate with with the community, not allowed to participate in the synagogue. Um, she was an outcast, uh, likely unwed, no children, like, like totally extremes in the story. And yet Jesus meets them both. But back to this synagogue official in verse 22. So he came up 
And on seeing him, he fell on his feet. So somehow the synagogue official, through the crowds, he sees that Jesus is there. He's able to make his way there, maybe because he is a synagogue official and he's able to kind of shoo the people out of his way. But he gets there and he falls at his feet. Um, like I think our, our, our posture in approaching Jesus matters. Um, not necessarily the physical, I mean, you can make a case for either. I think his physical posture before Jesus really is a reflection of his heart, his mind, his thoughts. This guy is totally broken. He's totally desperate. Um, any parent in here, it, it's, you don't have to go too far down this road before you just have to shut down the thought of like, I don't even, I can't, I don't even want to go there. And my prayer is that as we get in the story, like I, I, my prayer is that our hearts would, would be receptive enough to allow ourselves to go there, to imagine if you have a child or if you imagine having a child or somebody that you love closely that's especially young and they're dying, like what emotions would you be feeling? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like total adrenaline rush, fear, like anger at God, Anger at whatever is causing it. Wishing you could trade places with the person because it's somebody that like children aren't supposed to die before their parents. And I've been at, at deaths where it could be like an older person and the parent who's in their 90s. And it's just like, it doesn't matter the age of the people. It's like if a child is dying, it, it's your child. And so here this guy, he makes his way to Jesus. He falls at his feet in total and complete desperation. Verse 23, and he implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. This is like the 911 call. Like I wish we had the recording of the story. Like this isn't calm and collected. This is a guy with stature who... The community looked up at, to him. The community would respect him. How he carried himself mattered. And yet here he is in, the, in front of all of the crowds, falling before Jesus, likely with tears coming down his face, pleading for him to do something. You know, I, I asked for permission to share a prayer request for Miss Pat back there. And um, like this story already, just kind of imagine, you know, I'm a dad, with, I have a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old daughter. Um, so unfortunately, like the story is like, it's really easy for it to like penetrate my heart. And so kind of thinking of, about this throughout this week, and then Miss Pat, who I think the, best word that defines Pat in my mind is grittiness. <laughs> like, like she is a lady with spunk and, and uh, she's tougher than I am. There's no question about that. And I don't think she's going to argue with that. Um, but today she came in and I could tell she didn't make the turn into the sanctuary. She like went all the way down the hallway into the room. And I asked permission to share this just to reiterate that. But um, she needed prayer. Um, and, and her prayer request was desperate, 
pleading. And to see the ladies go around her and, and pray for her was beautiful for me. Um, but her prayer request, she's, she's having night tremors, and the doctors don't know what's causing it. Uh, it could be the Parkinson's. It, it could be medication that she's taking. Um, but with, with night terrors of these dreams that are keeping her up at night, um, and we, we've all been sleepless. I mean, it just kind of compounds itself, so please be praying for her. Um, but reading this story, seeing her posture this morning, seeing this guy's story, just falling at the feet of Jesus, pleading. If you circle in your Bible, circle little daughter, you know, you'll see that word a couple times. I don't think it's an accident through this text. Here, my daughter is at the point of death. Like to allow that to sink in. So first this guy's desperate. Where's Jesus? I heard he was in town. Well, he's been gone for a couple days. And all of a sudden he shows up and then he, he's like, oh, he's landed. All the crowds are there. It's so crowded that Jesus can't make his way to the shoreline. He does what he can do to get to Jesus. He gets to Jesus. He falls at his face, feet and then he pleads with him about the situation. And he has an idea. And he says, please come and lay your hands on her so that uh, the purpose clause, she will get well and live. All you need to do is come to her, touch her, and she'll be healed. So he knows exactly what he wants of Jesus. He's heard about his ability to heal other people and to do things. He's pleading. And so I can't help but to read this and wonder if there's not eavesdropping ears within earshot. Like, they don't know the whole story, but we know the story. Mark gave us this, this woman who's bleeding for 12 years. She's there. She's nearby. In her story, which we'll get to, she doesn't seem to be a devout Jewish girl that we can tell. She seems to, to, to border on magical, mystical, sort of hocus-pocus. She's desperate. Any, anything. She spent her whole life spending everything that she had, every resource, She's clearly drawn here by the crowds, hearing about this, this, this miracle worker who's doing things. Maybe he'll do something. And in earshot, she hears this synagogue leader saying, all you need to do is come to my daughter and touch her. Can't help but to think that she wasn't there and go, all he has to do is touch her. Well, maybe if I just like... Well, Rick's not Jesus. We all knew that. <laughs> and I don't have anything I'm asking for healing. But, but it's kind of like you can't, like, there's these two stories that are happening, and it's hard to focus on one, but not forget that the other one's going on. But while this guy's pleading, this woman's listening. And here's this guy, desperate. He's like, gets down there. He gets through the crowd. He makes his case. Just because he makes his case, Jesus doesn't necessarily listen to the, the, the synagogue leaders. But in verse 24, Jesus goes. And he went off with him, and the large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And so the leader, like, there's all kind of like little small miracles that happen. First, he's able to get down to Jesus in time, he's able to get Jesus' ear. He then is. Uh, has the opportunity to, to, to speak to Jesus in a way that Jesus says, I, I've heard your case, I'm going to go with you, let's go. 
Um, Mark gives us information out of order. And so what I want to do is I want to skip from verse uh, 24 all the way to verse 30 so that we can look at the story sort of real time. So here they begin to go. The crowds are pressing in on him. I've never been to India, but I kind of, the, the mind that I have, the picture I have in my mind is it's a situation like some of the, uh, the train stops that I've seen in India where there's just like a horde of people, like just everywhere, pressing in on you. And like, what do you do? And in verse 30, as they're heading there with all of these crowds pressing on, verse 30, immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, it didn't happen. What I was praying for is that like one of the air conditioners would kick in, kick in and the lights would dim. You know how like sometimes the air conditioner kicks in and it dims the lights and then they come back up. That's what I have in my mind. Like Jesus is walking along. He's like, whoa, what happened? I lost a little something. It's not like they saw it, but Jesus said it, he, he feels that power had gone forth from him. Don't, like, we can imagine this, but I can't even imagine. Like, and he turns around in the crowd, all these people, and he said, who touched my garments? There's so many, like, and there's so many trains of thought that I, like, the first guy is like Jairus. This guy's daughter is dying. He made it here. He got to Jesus. He made his plea. Jesus heard him. Jesus is responding. He's going to Jesus. Now they're through the crowds. Now Jesus is going around. Who touched me? He's like, maybe this guy's a whack job. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what's he thinking? He's like, he's, he's desperate. He, he seems to believe in Jesus. He seems to be approaching Jesus the right way, but there's probably some uncertainty. Like, I don't know that he's actually interacted with Jesus. He then now, like, in the crowds is suddenly going, who? And it's like, oh, no, there goes my daughter. Like, this, is, this, this was a pipe dream. Like maybe, like, maybe I should have been back there with my daughter so I could be there in her last moments to say goodbye. But I left hoping to get this guy. Now he's in the crowd asking who touched him. Then there's the lady's reaction. So we know because we already read the story. But she's in the shadows. We, we know, but the, the crowd didn't know. But she, she's in the shadows. She touched him. She immediately was healed. She knew her body, what was going on. She subjected herself to all kinds of things, only to grow worse with time. She's unclean. She's an outcast. She did the unthinkable by going into the crowd unclean and then touching Jesus. With the religious leader Jairus right there. Like this is horrific what she did. And we don't know what her thought process is about what happened. Like was it magic was it hocus pocus? Like all she knows, she's well. And she's ter- terrified. She, this all happens to her in an instant. And Jesus suddenly is turned around going, who touched me? Who touched me? Everybody's like, you, the disciples, are, you're crazy, Jesus. Like what are you talking about? But there's one girl there 
who the terror that just set in on her. Um, again, but the disciples, verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing on you and you say who touched me? Like it's like, I don't know that we have to expand on this very much, but I mean, it's like, they're not super convinced about like, well, Jesus, you're lo-. like, maybe you need more sleep. Like maybe, you know, th- th- they're going back to when they calm the storm and say, who is this man? Now they're saying, who is this guy? Like he asks who touched me. Which is, which is, you know, I think a, a natural. He knows that power went out from him. He has power over all the elements. He has power over the demons. He has power to heal this lady. And now he's asking who touched me. And it seems like God in the garden asking, where are you guys? Does God need that answered? I, like, I don't, I, I mean, I, you know, Jesus had fully God, fully man, uh, emptied himself. So I'm not sure, like, and I don't have the answer. Like, did he know who touched him? I want to say, yeah. But maybe in his kenosis where he emptied himself, as uh, Philippians 2 talks about, maybe it was something that was restricted. I don't know. They certainly are looking at him like, it's kind of a crazy question. Verse 32, and he looked around to see the woman who had done this. So we have Jesus, like, did he know who she was or is he just randomly looking at everybody and the girl who's guilty is there going, he knows it, he knows it, he knows it was me. I'm, I'm guilty. The disciples and disciples rolling their eyes and Jairus going, come on, man, my daughter's dying. Like, we, like when I said she's on the point of death, I meant like, I didn't mean like in an hour from now, two hours from now. I mean like at the point of death. Matthew records that she's already dead. Luke adds to us that this was the guy's only daughter. So it's not like she had like a whole bunch to choose from. Not that that matters, but it's like the desperation is there. And the woman is totally afraid. Going on into verse 33. But the woman fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her. I mean, I just see her like shaking, like, what's going to happen to me? I shouldn't have touched him. I shouldn't be in this crowd. I shouldn't be doing all these things. I know I'm unclean. And so somehow in the midst of this crowd, she makes her way to Jesus and she falls down before him like the religious leader, this unnamed woman. And if you write in your Bibles, And we're told that Anne told him the whole truth. Which presumably is how Mark has his information. Mark, it's believed, has all of this information as a, almost like a scribe for Peter and is passing this on. And and like that word whole truth, it just kind of like caught my attention. Like, I don't know if this is Peter telling the story, like, yeah, there was this woman, and then she told the whole, like, the whole, tr- like, everything. Like, there's, there's just details in Mark that, that shout of an eyewitness account. And so what do we know? Like, the, the whole truth. She's fear and trembling, aware that she had been healed. She falls before him. 
This whole truth is how we know the, what comes between verses 25 through 29. And then as we read about the whole truth, like I don't know how long this took, but Eastern cultures, in telling a story, it can take a long time. And so while she's telling the whole truth, there's Jairus who's like, okay, she healed, like, let's go. And so going back to verse 25, let's read about the whole truth. What's the whole truth? What did she share with Jesus? She's at his feet. She's weeping. I'm imagining weeping. She's, she has had something for 12 years that's been horrific. Instantly, she knows it's gone. She knows she's healed. So then she's like wrapped up with, I've got to be joy and relief and disbelief in, in what's happened. And so in verse 25, we read a woman without a name. We don't know anything about her. Totally opposite ends of the spectrum from Jairus who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Now in Western thought, with modern technology, we read this and we think, oh, poor thing, like she's got to be anemic. She's got to be sick. She's got to be super weak, like bleeding out for 12 years. Like, like, I think the Western mentality, we, we are just like strict, stricken with compassion. But, but now Jewish thought under the law, especially during that time, f- for reasons that we're just really far from, their thought from Leviticus uh, 15 verses 25 through 33, if you want to read it, is that this lady is ceremonially or ritually unclean. Um, it, would have bo- it would have restricted her from access to the community. It would have restricted her from worship. It would have restricted her from, from community. Um, because of this problem, she would have been unmarried and likely she had no children. So she is like destitute. It, 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 this, this really is a very, very bad situation. Um, on the last trip to Israel, we were coming home one day and I wasn't really paying attention to the conversation behind me, but Guy, the tour guide, had been asked a question by somebody in the bus and I hear him say, oh, I've never had this question in my, all my years of guiding. And, and I'm like, what's going on? Like I missed the, fir- like I missed the first part. But somehow a female on the bus had asked about this Levitical law. Like somehow it came up. And the person asked like, hey, uh, like how's it work today? Because there it's like they're supposed to take me able, you know, the monthly cycle comes up. The woman's supposed to have like a week off from cooking because she's unclean. Like, she, like it seems like, the person who asked the question, like it seems like a pretty good deal to me. Is this still going on? Like, I think they're thinking about converting to Judaism. You know, maybe like this is a reason. So a guy like comes to the speaker. He's like, I've never had this question. I'm going to call my Jewish friend rabbi, like this rabbi friend of his. And then like, a, you know, an hour later, so guy's like, hey guys, guess, I guess the Jewish men today have decided that they would allow for uh, uh, a special dispensation that the women can still make the men sandwiches if this is going on. <laughs> 
So even today, I don't think it's like that big of a deal. But then it was a big deal. That's my point. And we, we see how long? 12 years. How old is Jairus' daughter? 12 years. Jairus, hearing her tell the story, 12, he's like, Jesus, there's a, remember that 12-year-old little girl that I was talking about? Like, going on to verse 26. And had endured much at the hand hands of many physicians. It's funny, Luke doesn't, Luke's, the physician union must have restricted Luke from putting this in there. Luke is a physician who also documented his story. He didn't speak unkindly towards the physicians. But, but we read that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all. But she'd rather grown worse. Like, everything she had, she spent to get rid of this. Unsuccessfully. And when we read at the hands of many physicians, what are some of the things that they could be doing? Well, Kent Hughes, um, in one of his commentaries, he pulls out from the Talmud some of the instructions, which I found kind of entertaining. So I thought it was worth sharing because I found it kind of entertaining. Uh, Not entertaining if you're the woman through this. Um, So the Talmud, this is quoting from Kent Hughes, the Talmud listed no less than 11 cures for this specific illness. Uh, Some were potions, but others were mere uh, uh, superstitious folly. For example, in one place it said, take the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a small silver coin, of alum the same, of crocus, I don't know what that is, the same. Flower? That's why I didn't know what it was. If this does not benefit, take of the Persian onions three pints, boil them in wine, and give it to her to drink, and say, arise from thy flux, which is bleeding. If this doesn't cure her, set her in place where two ways meet. So I'm imagine, I've been imagining Miller and Colgrade because two ways intersect right there. And let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and let someone come behind and frighten her and say, arise from thy flux. In another place, it's hilarious, but this is like stuff they're doing. In another place, the Talmud recommended that the afflicted woman carry a barley corn which had been taken from the droppings of a white (laughs) she-donkey. Very likely this woman had tried all of this stuff. Um, I think of like, the hiccups, you know, trying to scare somebody. It's like you're dying of cancer. Well, maybe if you sneak up and you say, boo, it will get rid of it. And who knows what else they were doing, but she was anything that somebody offered, she was willing to take them up on it. This woman is desperate, and she had endured much at the hand of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, of, at all but rather had grown worse. Verse 27, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And I imagine what she's saying. She's like, I've done all this stuff. I've seen doctors, 12 years. I've spent everything I've had. I heard about you. I came to you. I was in the crowd, and I thought to myself, if I just came and touched your cloak, I would get well. 
Verse 29, immediately the flow of her blood. But I'm thinking of she's saying, Jesus, immediately the flow of my blood was dried up. And I felt in my body that I was healed of my affliction. Like it worked immediately. I, um, in looking at her story, I can't not see the gospel. This impure woman reaches out and touches Jesus who shouldn't be touched because by law he would become unclean. But the reality is what he did is he took her uncleanness and gave her his purity. And that's exactly what the gospel is, is that we all are impure before God and that he's provided a way that he's reached out and touched us or that we can touch him and we can, made, we can be made white as snow, righteous, holy. His righteousness is imputed to us, transferred to our account, and that our sin, our uncleanness is placed on him at the cross. It's beautiful. And I can't imagine her posture. She's telling this story. And in verse 34, he said to her, I told you to circle the other word, daughter. But he says, daughter. This is the only place in the whole New Testament that Jesus refers to a lady or anybody as daughter. Um, This is like a father to a daughter, a child, a a, a gentle look. The the, the right word for him to use would be like... um, when he's on the cross and he's talking to John and he says, this woman, speaking of Mary, is now your mother. That would be like saying ma'am. But here, it's, he refers to her gently. Almost like a 12-year-old daughter. It says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And then the question, your, your faith... The object of her faith was correct, but was her theology right? I don't think so. Like I, I, one commentator says that her, her faith was imperfect at best. But it's interesting. Jesus didn't straighten out her theology and say, no, you got to like get all this right and you got to like, this is what the Bible says and you need to get like before you move forward, we need to like get you straightened out academically. He just tells her that your faith has made you well, her imperfect faith. I do think there's a lesson to us. Sometimes like we feel like we have to straighten out all people's like miss, like, like their theology that's not mature enough. Like maybe there's, maybe there's room in here to, to say, just back off, let them get it in the word. Like I'm not saying to depart from the word. I'm saying like allow God to straighten out their theology by being in the word. Encourage people to be in the scriptures. And, and it's, it's okay. Like, I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I wasn't where I am now. It took 20 years to where I am now. And 20 years from now, I'm going to laugh at the Gunner's theology of today because I'm going to mature and I'm going to grow in my relationship and I'm going to have a deeper understanding 20 years from now. And so we have Jairus there tapping his toe, looking at his watch, like, 
You know, if he had a phone, he'd be like texting, like, I got him here. He said he's coming, but I don't like. But while he was still speaking, while he, that's Jesus, verse 35, was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Like, just let those words sink in. Here Jesus is, like this no, nobody, nothing woman. We have the synagogue leader. He was in line first. She took cuts or in like, you know, like. And then she has to tell her whole story to Jesus. And Jesus wants to hear it. And now these men come to him and say, your daughter's dead. I get goosebumps just like, it's not something any of us ever want to hear. Your daughter, that word again, daughter, third time, has died. And then we see their misunderstanding of Jesus and who he is. Why trouble the teacher anymore? So they see him just as a teacher. They don't see him as Lord. They don't see him as the one who spoke all creation into existence. She's dead. The moment has passed. You need to start dealing with your daughter's death. Let him be, let the crowds go, go home and bury your child. But Jesus overhearing what was being spoken, so you, you get the impression that Jesus is engaging with this woman. I know that we kind of went in out of order, but she'd been telling him the whole truth. And Jesus is, is communicating with her and Jairus is off to the side and the men come and tell Jesus, Jairus that your daughter's died. And, and Jesus kind of hears it out of the corner of his ear. And so as he overhears what's being spoken, he then goes to the synagogue official. He says, don't be afraid any longer. Afraid of what? Afraid that your daughter might die. Afraid that you're not going to get there in time. He says, only believe. Just what this woman had did. Only believe. In verse 37, we read, And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So these three of the disciples throughout the Gospels, um, of the 12, these three had like special access to things like what's going to happen in today's story that the other disciples did it. They had access to the transfiguration that the other disciples didn't have access to. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that there's like of these three, you have sort of the bookends of the apostles that you have the very oldest Peter and then you have the very youngest John who would be like, so Peter's like the leader of the early church and then you have John that's going to be there till um, after everybody had died and been like basically killed for their faith. John is the one that's still going. And then you have James, his brother, who would be the first to be executed for his faith. And so he, I don't know, he keeps everybody back, but he allows Peter, James, and John to come. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion. And people loudly weeping and wailing. These were likely, um, you know, they had professional mourners back then. So already the, the pros had showed up. There's a big crowd letting everybody know that a death had occurred in the room, that a child had been lost. And entering in, he said to them, verse 39, why make a commotion and weep? The child 
is, has not died, but is asleep. And, and I, I love this picture of Jesus not stirring up drama. He, he calms the situation. He doesn't play into the... He's like, guys, just relax, chill out. There's probably a lesson for us in this to, to, to not be people that provoke more drama, but to be the peacemakers, to be the ones that like, hey guys, just relax. It's going to be okay. Now, they didn't respond well. Verse 40, they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, and they entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. This is not a special phrase. This is a very common phrase. This just, um, uh, Alistair Begg would call this wakey wakey. Uh, picture a parent going into their young child's room in the morning and say, honey, sweetheart, it's time to wake up. Sweetheart, wake up. You know, school's starting. It's time, like, we got to go. But then you think, why do they translate it? What's the big deal? Uh, this phrase is, is Aramaic, which is a distinctly Jewish language during the time. And Mark is believed to be writing to a Gentile audience. And so when he says Talitha kum, he's, he, what he's writing in Greek to a Roman audience or a Greek audience, they wouldn't understand what Talitha kum means. But it's one of those things that kind of just speaks of an eyewitness account that it's like, Jesus said, Talitha kum. Just wakey, wakey, honey. Time to get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years old. Like I just imagine Peter looking at Mark telling the story and say it was like there were three of us and the parents. And he just said, wake up, honey. A super common phrase. And immediately she just... She, the girl got up and began to walk. And again, look at the phrase. For she was 12 years old. That just seems weird. It's like the, the, a first-hand account. Like, she was dead. He said, get up, honey. She gets up and she walks because she's 12 years old. This isn't like, like the, the stun of it all, to see something like this. And immediately, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. I don't know what the this is. Um, certainly they're going to know about the daughter because she's going to walk out of the house to all the mourners. And maybe it was a description of what and how it happened. Um, but clearly she's up and kind of like walking about going, what's all the commotion about? And then he said that something should be given to her. Eat. Like, come on, guys, she's hungry. Get her a snack or something. It's like we, she missed lunch with this whole dying thing. Like, get her some food. She's hungry. And... Uh, so it's a beautiful story, and what do we do with the story? Like, what, like, there's two people on opposite ends of the spectrum. I, I really think there's three people in this story. Most, most like, when, you know, if you have a Bible that has, like, story, like, like not Bible text, but it sort of tells you what you're going to read about, like paragraph headings, it often will say that there's a story of two people. But there's really, there's the woman, there's Jairus, and then there's this 12-year-old girl. And, but with the two people, Jairus and the woman of bleeding, we, we see people on total opposite ends of the spectrum. They both are desperate, 
And we see that Jesus responds to both. And I think that there's, um, th- there's a lesson to us that God loves everybody and that we have a calling as a church to, to reach all people um, from the migrant undocumented worker on the corner uh, to, to Bill Murray in Palma Valley. Those are like the extremes that I can think of in our community um, that, that we have a commission to go out with the gospel for all peoples, all nations. The other question, how do we handle that your faith has made you well? Some people have taken this and distorted this. Um, there, there's, there's two extremes on the theological world. There's um, the cessationist, which says these things anymore. Then there's the continuous that would, like the extreme continuous would say, these things happen and they happen all the time. And if miracles aren't happening in your life, it's your fault because your faith isn't strong enough. So the question, does Jesus still heal today? I, I, like, I, I think absolutely. Um, Jesus heals. Ultimately, I think our perspective is short-sighted because ultimately he does heal through death. Um, like we're, we're freed from this body of sin and pain and heartache through new bodies that aren't contaminated by sin. But, but even in this life, like I, I believe that people have prayed for their cancer to go away and the cancer's gone away. Um, the other question I have is, does Jesus allow those to suffer that have faith? Answer for that one, absolutely. <laughs> Probably more common. Um, I think many of us miss what God is trying to teach us in the midst of our suffering and pain and sorrow. And we just want to be out of it when God's doing something in the midst of our suffering. You look at the early church, like they all suffered. You, you mean, read through Romans, you read through Peter, like the, 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 like the earmark of the early church was suffering. Um, as a little boy, I always remembered my dad talking about landing uh, the planes on aircraft carriers. You know, he's 85 years old now in a retirement home with Alzheimer's, can barely tell you what year it is at, at days. But if you get him talking about the days of flying his planes in the Navy, he loves to share the stories. Landing on postage stamps is what he said. And, and he would talk about, you know, calling the ball at night. It's like, well, Dad, what's calling the ball? And he's like, well, it'd be pitch black. You can't see anything, but there's three little lights. And on the, as you're going down, if you get one light, it means you're too high and you're going to miss the aircraft carrier if you see the other one, that means you're too low and you're going to smash, smash into the back of the aircraft carrier, which is bad, just in case you guys are wondering. And then there's, there's the middle one, which is like, I think it was a green light, which means you're, you're coming down at the right approach and you're going to be able to land and your tail hook is going to hit the wire to basically land you on the plane. And the reason I tell the story is I think when we look at the story... Uh, when I look at this story, when I look at the context, it's clear God is sovereign. God can do whatever he wants. He can do miracles if he wants to. God is also the one who's created this, uh, 
this order that we live in, in the world of these laws and physics and the second law of thermodynamics, which everything's moving from order to disorder. He also, when sin entered the world, death came in and spread to all man. He's allowed his faithful followers to suffer, just suffer much for following after Christ. And, and so we, we need to be careful because I think either one of the errors, if you're going about saying, well, you do something or you have something and you're praying earnestly to God and he doesn't heal you and your answer is like your faith just isn't strong enough, then you're missing the ball. And I think either one of the extremes or that God doesn't heal, either one of them could send your plane crashing into the back of the aircraft carrier. And so I don't, have, I don't have the answer. I think that the answer is that we're to keep our faith in Christ and to trust him whether he heals us uh, in this life or he heals us by death or he wants us to, to endure suffering in our present time because he's doing something in our lives in the tapestry of his handiwork that we can't see going through it and we just need to trust him. Okay, Lord, I'm in pain. I'm suffering persecution. I really don't want to be here. I'm asking for you to intervene. If you do, wonderful. And if you don't, praise the Lord, I'm going to endure it for your glory. I don't understand why you're doing it, but I'll trust you that you're doing something through it that I just can't see right now. And then in this story, there's the gospel. There's hope for us, all of us, have missed the mark with God. Our sin has separated us from him. Our sin requires justice. I think we feel this in our consciences. And Jesus says, I've come. I've given my life. I've allowed your sin to be placed on me. If you reach out to me by faith, you'll be cleansed. You'll be risen from the dead, you'll have new life. There's hope. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are sovereign over all. Father, we live in this world that has been absolutely decimated by sin, evil, is running rampant all around us. You only just have, you have to watch the news, read the paper to see that all kinds of just horrific things happen all day around us. Our bodies suffer and they're breaking down and it's hard. And Lord, as we read the scriptures, as we look at these stories, we see Jesus entering into human history. We do know absolutely that he did these miraculous works. Your word often tells us that they were done for the purpose of authenticating um, that, that he is the Messiah and that we can trust him. Father, we also... Um, we see in the scriptures that there are people who suffered and continued suffering and Jesus clearly didn't heal everybody 
but he healed many. And so there's a tension there, Lord, and we ask that you would help us regardless of our lot in life and where we are and what we're suffering through or will suffer through in the future. Father, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes upon you, that we would, uh, when we pray for healing, that we would be able to do it with all earnestness. And if the healing doesn't come, we, uh, we would have the heart of Paul that we see that in our weakness that you are magnified and uh, help us to trust you in the midst of our suffering now. We thank you, Lord, ultimately that Christ came and lived the perfect life and then gave that life as a sacrifice to redeem us from our sin, to redeem us from the consequence that was due us. And Father, we thank you that in him there's life. And so I pray for those of us in this room that maybe have never reached the place where um, we've surrendered our life to you, where we've believed in the work of Christ by faith. I pray that you would help these individuals to make that step. Um, that they would receive the eternal life that's promised in the scriptures. For those of us who have believed, Father, this is a hard life. There's, there's good things, there's difficult things, and we ask that you would help us to have a high view of you, that we would see you in all of your glory, that we would be able to press on. I think of Paul's words in Romans that... Um, that these present sufferings that we're going through, they're, they're nothing in comparison to the future glories that we'll experience in Christ. And so, Father, help us to keep our eyes on you. We thank you, Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.